you would stand with me as we hear now the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor, wicked, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word, that you would use your word to guide us, to convict us, to encourage us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the past, I have had opportunities to watch certain documentaries. And one of... Uh, my favorites is the long documentary that was put out by Ken Burns on the Civil War. Some of you may have seen it, and during that documentary, what they do is 
interspersed amongst accounts of battles and grand deeds of history, they put in people reading the letters of men from the battlefield and from their wives back to the men. So you get kind of a feel for what ordinary life was like. And one of the things that you may notice if you have a chance to look at this again or have a chance to read letters or journals from that era, from the early 19th century to about the middle 19th century, is that men and women were fond of speaking of providence. And when they would speak of providence, it would be providence with a capital P. People don't do that anymore. If we speak of providence, it's always in the lowercase. And providence has come to take on a connotation where basically it means luck in our society at large. When people talk about providence, there's nothing really behind it. It's happenstance. It's chance. It's luck. You see, in centuries gone by, people would speak of the hand that guides history and would speak of providence in a personification of the hand of God. Our day and age is much more like this morning's pop culture reference, the old television show, The Facts of Life. You may remember that from the 80s. The theme song being, you take the good, you take the bad, you have them both, and there you have the facts of life. Some good stuff happens, some bad stuff happens. It's just sort of there. There's nothing we can do about it. That's life. Right? Some of you that are a little bit older may remember the, the old classic song, That's Life. It's the same sort of attitude. There's nothing really behind events. We just have to take it. Now that shouldn't surprise us, because that's not a 20th century phenomenon. It's a phenomenon that existed in the days of Solomon. You see, Solomon was dealing with people, as a matter of fact, his own life in which... It was very tempting to see the world as one series of meaningless events on top of each other. With nothing behind it all. With no purpose. With no guide. You see, it isn't simply the onset of evolutionary theories that have taken away meaning from men and women. No. What Solomon says is that's just the latest manifestation of life without God. To use the vernacular of Ecclesiastes, of life under the sun. And as always, our tour guide has a help and an assistance for us. And so what I would like us to see is Solomon's view of providence, of the meaning and purpose of life, and how we are to interact with that, how we are to have a responsibility to see and respond to the providence of God in life. And the first thing that I would like us to see is the facts of life that Solomon lays out. In the beginning of this chapter, he says, this is what life is like. Let me paint a picture for you. It should look familiar. And then he says, this is how the people around me respond. This is the response of the world, the world without faith. It's a response that you see all the time in your workplaces at school, in the neighborhoods, there is a response to the facts of life. 
And then Solomon gives us encouragement how we, as believers in the Lord, as those who are the people of God, who see the hand behind events, should respond to the providence of God by responding in faith. Well, let us look first, then, at the facts of life. The facts of life as Solomon lays them out. Look first at verse 2 of chapter 8. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. The first thing that Solomon says is, let me remind you that you're under control. Now, this isn't earth-shattering, right? We go out from this place and we're under laws. We're under authorities. People tell us what to do all the time. They tell us how fast to drive. Here in Texas, they tell us when to cut our lawns, when to put down trees, right? You go to work and people tell you what to do. Even if you own your own business, you have customers that tell you what to do. We can't escape it. You see, we think at times because we live in America and we don't have a king that we don't have to listen to a command. Tell that to someone who disobeys the laws of the president and Congress. You have to go and find yourself a federal penitentiary. You see, we are people who are under control. This shouldn't surprise us because, as Solomon says here, God has ordained this to be so. He tells us to keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, Before Solomon gets into the practical matters of life, he's starting on a principle. He's saying that God is behind this aspect of life. God has ordained the king. This is a text, I believe, that Paul was thinking about and looking to when he wrote Romans 13. We're much more familiar with Romans 13, but Ecclesiastes has the same message. It's that the powers that are ordained, that are placed over us, are ordained by God. The reason that we are to obey the king is because God has ordained it. It's not just God's oath, that is, God's placement of the king over us that Solomon has in view here, though. There's also an idea that this language takes up our oath before the king is an oath before God. You see, what we swear before men, God expects us to perform. The Bible is full of that as well. Now, you may say, well, we don't have kings. And I haven't lately put my hand in a Bible and said, I solemnly swear in front of an official. But I would say to you that we still, as citizens of the United States of America, we take an oath to our government. There are still some places where it is legal to say the Pledge of Allegiance, is it not? And you see... This is something that God has ordained. You don't get to say, well, you know, I'll obey the rules of the United States, but if a Democrat gets elected, all bets are off. I'll do whatever I want to do. Do you? Well, I'll obey as long as the man I like gets elected. No. You obey the laws of the land, no matter who's in charge. This is the principle of life. It's a principle also that you all know better than many people in America. It's the same principle behind the vows that you take when you become a member of this church or any church. You vow to uphold the peace and purity of the church, to be subject to its government, 
See, as Americans, we're not free from this. This is a structure that God has ordained. And Solomon gives us then some practical advice based on this principle. He says, don't struggle against it. Look at verse 3. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. The word here for be not hasty to go from his presence has the idea of disloyalty, of deserting the king, of running out. And Solomon says, don't be disloyal. This is a God-ordained authority. Life is like this because God has made it so. He also says, don't do evil. Don't do evil, for the king does whatever he pleases. He's talking about the power of the king, but he's also, I think, striking at us that we are not able to do evil simply because the king is acting in a certain fashion or simply because we don't like him. The Bible puts it this way. Shall we do evil that good may come of it? No, certainly not. That's a form of relativism. That can strike at us in everyday life. How many of you, as April 15th is about to roll around, are thinking or tempted to say, you know what? I don't know that I'll pay all my taxes because the government wastes an awful lot of money. And it's not just waste, waste, there's criminal waste, right? How many of you have said, well, I'm not going to do this because it's a stupid law? I know I've said that. Does it make it right? You see, we can't do evil simply because we have a certain perspective on events. God is still behind them all. And Solomon gives us another piece of very practical advice. He says, don't invite punishment. You struggle against authority, you invite punishment. For the word of the king is supreme. And who can say to him, what are you doing? We have a saying for this. It's called, don't fight City Hall. It's just a little different idiom. Solomon's giving good practical advice. He says, instead, because you're under control, I want you to exercise wisdom. He says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. What does this mean? It means because God is behind all, God will provide a way. It may not be the way in which you think he should provide, but God provides a way for obedience in the midst of providence. For example, when David was running from Saul, God provided an opportunity to Jonathan to speak a word to his father and to dissuade him from killing David. We see that in 1 Samuel 19. When David, the powerful monarch of Israel, decided to disobey God's law and to take to himself the wife of another, God gave Nathan an opportunity to speak to David in a direct way. We see it also, ladies, in Esther. You don't need to be a powerful prophet or the son of a king to find a way from God. Esther found an opportunity to plead for the salvation of her people because it just happened that one day the king said to her, what can I do for you, Queen Esther? And she said, well, there is one thing. I really wish you wouldn't murder all my people. What? God provided an opportunity. But sometimes the opportunity that God provides doesn't seem like an opportunity. 
God provided an opportunity for Joseph to obey God's law. But it involved prison and suffering. But still God is behind all of this. He has a greater purpose in life. The second thing that Solomon tells us about the facts of life is that not only are we under control, but we are often without control. Even those of us that do have some control. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 7. For he does not know what it is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. You see, Solomon says something that we need to remind ourselves, but it's a truism. You can't control the future. Who knows what's to be? Who can tell us what is to be? You see, God is in charge of the times. Verse 6, For there is a time and a way for everything reminds us of Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for peace and a time for war, a time for birth and a time for death. You remember that refrain? Some of you right now are playing through the bird song in your mind. But God is the one who sets those times. And what Solomon says is, you don't know the future. You don't have control over the times. God does. And God knows that this frustrates us. Look at the second half of verse 6. Man's trouble lies heavy on him. We want control. We want to be able to manipulate all of our events to line up just the way we want them. And that is the good life. And sometimes we view that as the godly life. We're only living a godly life if everything lines up the way we want it to be. No bumps in the road, just as we imagine. Solomon says, you can't control the future. You don't know what will be. We have illustrations of this throughout our popular culture. But have you ever noticed that any of these books, television shows, or movies that describe someone who tries to change events through some sort of time travel or something, it always winds up messing stuff up. Have you noticed that? Some of you will recall, next pop culture reference, one of the initial series of movies that Michael J. Fox made called Back to the Future. And you remember what he did pretty much every time in every one of those movies? He was pretty much occupied with fixing what had gotten messed up because he had messed up the way life was supposed to go. One of the films, he gets his hands on a sports almanac and figures, now I could be a millionaire because all I need to do, I know everyone that's going to win every game in all the future. I'll take this home with me, bet on all these teams, and I'll be a millionaire. And what happens? Something goes astray and his whole world collapses and he spends the rest of the movie trying to put back what he's messed up. That happens to us, even though we don't have time-traveling Lamborghinis. We try and get control over our events. We see what the future will be, and we take actions that make no sense in the present because we are sure that we need to be in control of our future. Right? We need to guard against that, Solomon says. You can't control life. You can't control the future. You can't control life. Look at verse 8. No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. That verse is not saying the same thing two ways, I think. When Solomon's talking about no one can retain the spirit, what he's saying is you can't have complete control over your emotions. 
Here's a shocker for you. Are you ready? You cannot be Mr. Spock. You know Mr. Spock from Star Trek? No matter what else is going on there, the most that he might do is look quizzically. Indubitably, Captain Kirk. Always in control. Never raising his voice. Never getting upset. Right? Sometimes we think as Christians our goal is to be Mr. Spock. That we're supposed to face life with complete equanimity. Never be upset by what's going around us. Never be heartbroken or anguished at the death that sweeps across our nation. Never be upset or anxious because our health is not what we desire it to be. Never be just a bit concerned because of our children. You see, the proper response is to take these things to the Lord, not to deny them. You see, you can't retain the spirit. You can't restrain it. The language here actually is the language of a prison. You can't take your emotions and put them in a steel box and put them on a corner somewhere so that you're the perfect Christian. Solomon says that's not what life is about. The Christian life is not being a stoic. He also says you can't control death. No one knows when they will die. And he actually uses vivid language here. There is no discharge from war. That verse actually goes with the previous verse. The old King James says there is no discharge from that war. That is the war with death. You cannot say, I draft dodge the war with death. I choose to live forever. You're not in control of that. And you can't control right from wrong. Notice what Solomon says. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. You can't say, well, you know what? I know what's right for me, and that's going to be right. Right for me is going to be stealing from people. You're not in charge of that. You can't do that. I don't care how much money you have, how many employees you have, how many people are under your authority. You cannot change right from wrong. You cannot control life. These are the facts of life. Solomon lays this out and he says, the problem is the response that most people have to it. Look at verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When a man had power over man to his hurt. He says the first response is for someone to say, you know what? It just doesn't matter. Things happen, right? Bumper sticker. Stuff happens. Whatever. Go right on ahead. He said that's often the response. Pain is a part of life. I've seen this when man had power over man to his hurt. Now notice that he's moving into a secular mindset. What's our phrase that we keep seeing over and over again? It's right here in this verse. Under the sun. That's Solomon's clue. That's his flag he's waving. This is a secular response. This is a godless response. It's under the sun. It just doesn't matter because pain is a part of life. People hurt other people. I see this all the time. I do too. Don't you? What Solomon says is that oftentimes a bad response that we have is to say it just doesn't matter. Now, 
The language here again is wonderfully ambiguous. He talks about a man having power over man to his hurt. Who's hurt? I don't know. The Hebrew doesn't tell us. Is it the man who has the power or the man who's on the other end of the power? And I think the answer is both. Let me give you an example that you'll well understand. It's contrary to this foolish notion that there are things called victimless crimes. We all know that isn't the case, right? Some of us in our experience have seen people's lives destroyed by victimless crimes, right? This is who is hurt, both. And the irony here is very thick. He says, all this is done... When a man had power over man to his own hurt. He says this in the context of a man he's just described as having no power, right? No power over the spirit. No power over death. No power, no power, no power. And yet, this man who has no power is lording it over, the Hebrew says. Lording it over others to their hurt and to his own. Why? Because it just doesn't matter. Pain is a part of life. And you know what? Injustice is a part of life too. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. Note the irony there. They're wicked and where are they? They're found in the holy place. They're going in and out of the temple. In and out of the church. We see this all the time on the television, don't we? Those who are loudest in support of abortion or homosexual rights or all other forms of wickedness and perversion, the cameras catch them going in and out of where? Church. Right? We see this all the time. But look at the problem. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. The power of that statement is palpable because what Solomon's saying is this. I saw the wicked, they're dead, and now they're being praised in the very places where they committed wickedness. They can't hurt anyone anymore. They can't put anyone in fear anymore. And yet still, they are praised. And so a response we have is, you know, injustice is a part of life. Even after death, people get praised. You'll still hear it, although rarer than... 50 years ago, people will say, oh, well, you know, at least Mussolini made the trains run on time. Right? You don't hear that too often, but you know what you hear? Well, at least Anna Nicole Smith did X. And you shake your head and you say, look at her life. But you see, we're that sort of feeling and people as we speak in general of the world. But it's not just that. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, wickedness is a part of life. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is set to do evil. What he says is, a response that the world has is, well, you know, I saw him rip somebody off and nothing happened to him. I guess you must be able to rip people off. They did that. I don't see his life being any worse for the wear. I think I'll do that. I guess lying and cheating and stealing must be the norm, right? We've actually gotten to that point where we've almost solidified it in statute. Some of you are old enough to remember a day in which 
adultery was a crime. Now, it's, what's that? Who cares? Something everyone does. You see, Solomon is saying here, this is the response of the world. It's a dangerous response. It's a response with no hope. We might say that Solomon here is playing the task of the wise robot who says, Danger, Will Robinson! Danger! Danger! Go away from here! A second response that we see in the world very quickly is in verse 14 and 15, and it's just ignore it. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and wicked people to whom it happens according to the righteous. Therefore, I commend joy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Under the sun, Solomon says, not once, but twice. He says, you know what? Don't try and make any sense out of it. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. I don't know. Toss up your hands. Just ignore it. Life is nonsense. And isn't this very much the case with what American life is like? Look at verse 15. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the American motto. Is my marriage in trouble? I wonder what it would be like to own a Maserati. My children are a mess. How about we go to Cancun? Right? We drown out life. That is what the response of the faithless is. Now, Solomon doesn't leave us there. You'll notice that he's always, every time we've looked at Ecclesiastes, he is very pointed and he pushes and he prokes and he prods and he doesn't leave us any rest from the consequences of godless action. But he also gives hope. Look at verse 12. It's almost as if as Solomon is going through, well, these are the facts of life. Life could be miserable. Let me tell you, man has no power over death. The wicked are buried, and then they're praised. And then he breaks out because he can't take it anymore. He says in verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and though he lives really long, does it matter? Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. You see, the response of the people of God, of the Christian, is to say, God is in control. Life is not what it seems to be. Now, notice something. I've said this to you before. I'm going to say it again. Little things in the Bible mean things. Words make differences. Do you remember what Solomon has been saying over and over again? We've seen it in this chapter. He says, I see, I observe, Right? I thought, what does he say here? I know. He doesn't say, I see, I observe, I find out, I seek out. He says, I know that those who fear God will be blessed. It's a sure knowledge based upon his faith. He looks beyond the appearance and he goes and he sees the providence of God for what it really is. He's looking at life in the light of ultimate reality. You see, he says, it is well with those who fear God. But he says more than that. He says, it will be well with those who fear God because they fear God. He's going behind the veil of providence and saying the response of the Christian is to fear God. 
is not to be caught up making excuses, not to drown out life, not to face the world as those who have no hope face the world, but to face the world with hope because God is in control. We need to remind ourselves of that. You see, if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have no hope. Who's in control? Nobody. So you better drown out life. You better make excuses. You better go with the flow because nobody's in control. Life is chaos. And what Solomon says to you today is what I say, and that is your hope, your life, your control is found in God, in fearing God, in seeing that God is in control, that God has designed and planned all aspects of our life. That God is in charge. Now for the Christian... That is the great blessing. Think of yourself as a child. Our Lord talks about coming to the Lord as a child. It is the most comforting thing in the world for a small child to know that mom and dad are there and in charge and in control. They have no worries that they don't get to maybe do certain things. Because they know that control is a good, a kind, and a loving control. That's the way we are to view God. And so what Solomon says is don't just have a response that says God's in control. He says you need to submit to this control. We need to understand that his ways are not our ways. And that is okay. Look what he says in verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, I saw all the work of God and that man can't find this out. Newsflash, you're never going to have life completely figured out. It's not going to happen. We all go through this, don't we? For myself, it was, well, you know, as soon as I graduate from college and get a job, then I think I'll have everything figured out, right? And then I used to say, well, you know, as soon as I get married and then the pieces are in place, then, you know, things will, I'll have things figured out. Well, you know, okay, maybe when I buy my first house. Maybe when I get my dream job. No. Life is messy, folks. It happens. And it's okay not to have everything figured out. See, if today the devil is whispering in your ear and not letting you rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, because there's some rough edges out there gnawing at your consciousness. It could be health. It could be children. It could be job. It could be anything. You don't need to smooth out the edges. You need to leave them there and look to Jesus. That's Solomon's conclusion. It's okay if we don't have it all figured out. We don't need to lose sleep, Solomon says, trying to figure out all the details. Even the wise man knows. The man who's wise, at the end, is wise because he knows he can't know it all. Isn't that right? We see that in personal application all the time. The more we learn about a subject, it could be something we take in school or our jobs or parenting, the more we know about it, the more we know what? What we don't know. Right? I've said to you before in humor that there's there's a path that man takes in life. It's a path in which you go and which you go and you hit about the teen years and you know everything. 
right? And then you start to realize you don't know everything, even though you know more than you knew. And then you get on down and you say, there's an awful lot that I don't know. That's real wisdom. And there's a comfort in knowing that it's God's work. This is all the work of God. That's what confuses us. God's providence. God is in charge and that's okay for providence to confuse us sometimes. Because there is a purpose. And this is a comfort to us in times that are troubling. We can place ourselves in the hand of God. We don't need to figure out all the details. One example of this would be Charles Spurgeon's memorable remark to someone who came to him all distressed, didn't know if he was saved, didn't know how he could be saved, and he said, Pastor Spurgeon, I've been reading the scriptures, and I don't know how to know if I'm elect. And I know I've got to be elect, be one of God's elect to be saved. How can I figure out if I'm elect? And Spurgeon said to him, you want to know if you're elect? Choose Christ. It's that simple. You don't need to spend all day and night sleeping trying to figure things like that out. Put yourself in the hands of the one who is in charge and who is loving and comforting. And this is true wisdom that takes us back as we conclude here to verse 1. I I didn't ignore it. Solomon says, Who is the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? This is sort of what we call a wisdom saying. He's setting up the whole chapter with this. And you notice what his answer is? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. What Solomon is saying is true wisdom, a truly wise response to circumstances and events and providence is to trust in God. And when we do that, it changes the way people see us and the way we look. This is familiar language. It should be very familiar language because it's language that we use very often in a benediction, right? The Lord make his face shine upon you. You see, often the scripture speaks of the Lord's face shining or Moses' face shining after being with the Lord. And what Solomon says is, when you are with the Lord, when you have true wisdom, you look out and see providence and your face shines. That's true wisdom. Wisdom does what God does. Wisdom follows the Lord. Wisdom fears the Lord. So today, tomorrow, this week, as you go out in a world full of rough edges and fraying string, take those rough edges to the Lord. Take the providence that God has given you to Him. That is the response of faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so wise to give to us this book. And we pray, O Lord, that you would, even now, impress upon our hearts a desire to be like you, to submit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.